I'd like to invite Morris to come and give us our Bible reading, please. The first reading can be found on page 449 in the Old Testament, page 449, from the book 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king to succeed his father in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. The king of Egypt made his brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took his brother Jehoahaz and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up and bound him with fetters to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried some of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his place in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And his son Jehoiachin succeeded him. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned for three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon along with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord, and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leading priests and the people also were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their youths with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or young women, the aged or the feeble, He gave them all into his hand. All the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his officials, all these were brought to Babylon. They burnt the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burnt all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. 
He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths, all the days that had laid desolate had kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he had sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also declared in a written edict, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And the second reading can be found on page 47 in the New Testament, chapter 9, verses 2 to 8, the Transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Morris. Sometimes when we hear the Old Testament readings, we're really reminded that we're looking at a text that is 3,000-odd years old. When you hear those names, they are very, very unusual to us. Morris, you did brilliantly. Thank you very much. As we begin to look at this word, let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study your word, as we get excited by this word that you've given us, Pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to hear what you might want to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, today we're up to week five in the Bible course. Um, I don't know about you, if you're coming on Tuesday nights and if you've been listening to all the sermons, but I'm really enjoying it so far. It's, um, it's really inspired me to look differently at the Bible. And I particularly like the way it's encouraged me to step back from the details of the individual stories that we might know to look at that great big story of God's interaction with his people. And I especially like the um, line that we've been working our way along, that, that timeline, that history line that um, we're going to have on the screen in just a moment might help to look at that as we uh, recap the story so far before we get stuck into today's section, which is all about the exile and the prophets. So, back to the beginning. We're starting where the round circle is. In the beginning, 
God created a good world. And even as it went wrong, God called Abraham into his plan to fix it. But through Joseph, Israel went down into Egypt. I've got a pointy stick here. Okay, so here's the creation. Here we are going down into Egypt. And then, after 400 years of slavery, God steps in and rescues his people. And Moses leads them out of slavery. Eventually, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then we have this weird circular bit that Tim talked to us about last week, where the people get stuck in a cycle of rebellion. And they rebel against God, and they cry out, cry out to him for a saviour. And so he raises up a judge, a leader, who brings peace in the land. Peace comes, and then peace goes, and the people rebel against God again. And the whole cycle continues. Rebellion, restoration, peace. Rebellion, restoration, peace. The people know they want to break out of this cycle. And Samuel anoints David as a king who is going to establish the kingdom of Israel. David establishes that kingdom and then he hands on to his son Solomon who builds the magnificent temple. And so here in our line we are around about here. And today's section is going to take us right over here. So I hope you're ready for a history lesson because we've got about a thousand years to cover. We're starting from Solomon because Solomon is the time when things really start to go badly wrong. Well, things have been going wrong from the beginning, really, ever since Eve ate that apple. But this is where it becomes really clear that things have gone particularly wrong between God and all the people. Under Solomon, the kingdom was huge. It was bigger than it had ever been. Solomon's fame had spread far and wide. Rulers came from all across the lands to visit him, and they brought him masses of gifts. In 1 Kings, we read of Solomon. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought a present, objects of silver and gold, garments, weaponry, spices, horses and mules. So much, year by year. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Can you imagine that? Silver is so common, it's as stones. Now, as well as great riches... We read that Solomon had great numbers of women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But we're not going to go there this morning. (laughs) He was a rich man. He was a powerful man. But he was a man who turned away from God. He began to worship foreign gods to please some of his foreign wives. He began to oppress his people with heavy taxes and hard service because he needed to maintain this vast kingdom that he had established. And eventually God tells him that he hasn't kept the covenant and that his kingdom will be taken from his son and torn apart. And that is exactly what happens. Solomon's son is called Rehoboam and he succeeds his father. And as soon as he succeeds to the throne, the people come to him and ask that their load may be lightened. He takes advice, he takes bad advice, 
And he answers his people harshly and tells them that rather than being lightened, their burden will be even greater under his rule. Not surprisingly, rebellion follows. And the ten most northerly tribes of Israel separate from the two southern ones. And you see that on the timeline where the little division goes off, where the diversion heads. You can see that here, we've got the ten tribes going up to the top and coming to a dead end, and we've got the two tribes continuing along the bottom. The ten most northerly tribes were called the Northern Kingdom. They were also called Israel in this period. It's quite confusing when you read the book of Kings and Chronicles because it constantly switches between calling them the Northern Kingdom and calling them Israel. And of course, we associate Israel with Jerusalem, but Jerusalem wasn't in Israel at that time. So don't let that confuse you. They are the ten northerly tribes or the Northern Kingdom. They appoint a rival king. They function as an independent nation in a region which really interestingly is later known as Samaria. Now that explains some of the reason that the Samaritans were so despised during the time of Jesus. But we'll come to that again later on. That's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom consisted of only two tribes, but they were named after the most significant one, and that is the kingdom of Judah. That's significant because it was David's tribe. Judah is the kingdom from which we then get the word Jew. That was my fascinating fact of the week. I never knew that. Now, crucially, this is David's tribe, so they hold on to the city of David. They hold on to Jerusalem in Judah. And they hold on to the promise of the Messiah who will come through David's line. So we've got two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, both with their own kings, both with their own centers for worship, And both which turn their backs on God. And because they've turned their backs on God, in both kingdoms God raises up prophets. If you were given a A4 sheet with all the different books of the Bible on, you might vaguely be able to see or make out those prophets. The northern kingdom prophets, they included Hosea, Amos, Elijah and Jonah. Interesting, isn't it? Hosea, Amos, and Jonah all get a book named after them. Elijah doesn't, but he's probably the one we've heard of more than the others. Anyway, all of them call on Israel, this northern kingdom, to return to God's ways. Hosea warns them about their unfaithfulness to God, and he reminds them that God's love is faithful. Amos warns them about the injustice that they have in Israel. Israel at this time has become a place of exploitation and slavery. It seems ironic that the people God had called out of slavery and set free have gone on to enslave other people. Amos calls them to return to God's justice and to strive for righteousness. And Elijah, well, he warns the Israel people against Baal worship. Baal, the god of the rain. We might remember the famous story of Elijah declaring a drought right across Israel and then finally having a showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when Elijah calls down fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal are not able to respond. Those stories are in 1 and 2 Kings if you want to revisit them. Final prophet for the northern kingdom is Jonah, called by God to go to Nineveh, 
which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire is important because they are the big threats. They are the superpower at that time. They are the ones who are threatening the borders of Israel all the time. And Jonah is called to go to their capital city and to call them to repentance. The northern kingdom fails to heed any of the warnings of the prophets. And the northern kingdom is defeated by the Assyrians, this big superpower. And that's in 772 BC. And it leads to the dispersal of the Israelites. The Assyrians were a very clever people as they took over more and more land. Their strategy was to mix up people, to send different groups into different parts of their territory. That meant that the the ethnic groups were dissolved and that eventually, through the intermingling, the identity of God's people was totally dissolved. That explains even further the hostility of the people of Galilee in Jesus' time to these Samaritans. They They were known as mongrels. They were no longer God's people. The kingdom of Israel, that northern kingdom of ten tribes, has come to an abrupt end. And you see that as they come to a full stop there at the top. That's the northern kingdom. Well, the southern kingdom, it was smaller. It was more compact. But even they struggled to live God's ways. And just as in the north, king after king after king gets it wrong. The southern kingdom has even more prophets. And they issue even more stark warnings about the consequences of worshipping false gods. We have Obadiah and Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel and Zephaniah and Nahum and Habakkuk. And if you read them, they have one theme. Stop worshipping false gods. Turn back to the God of your forefathers. Otherwise, disaster is going to come on you. And, as we've just heard, it does come in 597... When the Babylonians, who are the latest superpower, they've taken over from the Assyrians, the Babylonians come and they conquer Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and they smash the city walls and they carry off all the able-bodied people to Babylon in exile. It's a sad ending for that southern kingdom. They are in exile and here they are, taken away from there up to the top, that is the period of the exile. It lasted about 70 years. I'm sure we're all familiar with Psalm 137, and if not from the psalm, then from the Boney M song. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. God's people are no longer in the place that he has been true to them in the past. But you know, throughout this whole period, as the prophets in the north and the south issue their warnings, there's a continual message of hope that better times are going to come. And those messages continued to be heard even when the people were in the exile. Prophets at this time include Daniel. We remember Daniel was the one who stood out as being different and of continuing to uphold God's laws even though he was in exile. We have the story of the prophet Ezekiel who calls people back to hoping in God. God is still God, was the message. God will still use Israel to fulfill his purpose. And one day, God will send a saviour, a messiah, to lead them to be a great nation once again. 
70 years later. The Persians defeat the Babylonians and the Jewish people are allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city. And the prophets at that time are Zechariah and Haggai and they encourage the people as the city is rebuilt. Here they are, back in the land God wants them to be. And that's where the Old Testament comes to an end. God's people are back in the right place and they end with the promise from the prophet Malachi indicating that a Messiah is going to come and rescue God's people. If you're still with me, well done. We've done a thousand years of history almost. But it's not the end of the sermon because that's just been a history lesson so far. Because while it's really important that we know these historical events that are part of our faith and an important part of our faith, it's even more important that we understand the relevance of those historical facts to our faith today. It's more important that we can interpret them in the light of God's message for his people, his relationship with the world. The Old Testament tells us of God's plan to redeem the whole world through the nation of Israel. Israel messes it up time and time again, but God's promises are firm and sure. And at the end of the Old Testament, they are still there. He will redeem the whole world through this nation, Israel. Do you know, so often I hear Christians telling me that the Old Testament is a bit difficult. They don't get it. It's not relevant. And actually, we've got Jesus now, so why should we even bother with it? But if we step back from the Old Testament and think about the themes that we find in it, we see that actually it's not a story of an angry God or an unforgiving God or a violent God. It's not a story of a stern or distant God. The Old Testament is a story of hope. God's hope in humanity and God's hope for humanity. Let's think a bit more about those two themes. God's hope in humanity. From the very beginning, God desires a relationship with his people. And it goes wrong. But God still wants that relationship. And this kingdom of Israel, this people, this nation are established. But they're never intended to be the only ones to be in relationship with God. They're never intended to be superior. They're actually supposed to offer something else to the world. They're supposed to offer something so unique. And the means of making them unique is the covenant they have with God and the laws that he gives them. That's why he does it, to enable them to stand out as different to the rest of the world. As we've heard over the last two weeks, instead of living differently, instead of providing an example of how to live, instead of pointing to God and using the law and the covenant to demonstrate how different they are to other people, the Israelites have become just the same as anyone else, searching for more land and more power and more wealth. Adopting and worshipping false gods as ever it pleases them and forgetting what Yahweh has done for them. Turning their backs on God. And yet, God continues to hope in them. As you read throughout the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, that message of hope is always there with every new king. And it's striking the way that the kings are recorded Each time a new king is introduced, and we had three or four of them in the story we had this morning, each time it comes, we're told his age, we're told how long he reigned for, 
were usually told his father and his mother's names. And then we have the following sentence every single time. We either have, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, or we have, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what's really striking as you read through those chapters of Kings and Chronicles is how few of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And how many of them, most of them, did what was evil. What were these evil things that these kings did? Well, they follow two themes. The first one was worshipping false gods. And the second one was not upholding justice. We need to remember those. And yet, God continues to hope in them. We read the words of the prophets again and again. We read of warnings and descriptions of the terrible things that will happen. But it's always countered with a message of hope. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel you shall be devoured by the sword. That's what Isaiah says. Jeremiah says this. He says, if you return to me, Israel, if you return to me and remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in uprightness, then nations shall be blessed. God continues to hope in his people to the very end He continues to hope for the best for them. He always seems to think that they can do a bit better. And when some of them do turn back to him and are faithful to the covenant, they receive great blessings. You know, some of them are good. King Asa is a good one. King Jehoshaphat and later King Hezekiah. And there are individuals like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophets themselves. God is always ready to hear them and to pour out his blessings again. Even when his people are at their most rebellious, God wants to bring blessings. I find this hugely encouraging and challenging. It's challenging because the prophets make us face the depth of hurt and anger that our sin causes God when we turn away from him. Remember those two things that I said, God, the the kings got most wrong in all of that time. Worshipping false gods and not upholding justice. We might tell ourselves today that we don't do those things. We might say that we don't worship other gods. We come to church on a Sunday morning. But I think we do, and we're certainly living in a world that does. Gods of money and power and status, gods of fashion and having the right stuff and self-image, gods of sport, gods of materialism, gods of busyness. Anything that we put before our relationship with God, anything that prevents us from belonging totally to him is a false God. Having a relationship with God means putting him first all the time, every time. Spending time with him every day in prayer, in Bible study and in worship. These are the things that will deepen our relationship with him and enable us to grow and live the way he wants us to. And if we don't do those things, if we don't spend time with God every day, if we aren't putting our time with God above everything else, then effectively we are turning away from him 
We're putting other things before him and we're rejecting him. And the pattern that we see through the prophets is that that hurts God. Well, what about justice? We might tell ourselves that we're very good at upholding justice. We might say we live in a fair society, in a democratic world. And yet we all know that sometimes we fail to speak out for justice. We fail to speak out for the poor and the vulnerable, for victims of human trafficking, for those held in immigration centres, for those not paid a living wage. I think most of us know that we could do more to uphold justice and righteousness, both close at home and on a global scale. We have to face the facts that we let God down just as those in the divided kingdom let him down. But that doesn't stop him from hoping in us. Just as he continued to hope in the Israelites, God will continue to hope that we will return to him and his ways. God never gives up however many times we mess it up, just like those kings messed it up. God won't give up on us. He won't wash his hands of us and walk away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. That God that we see in the Old Testament is a loving and faithful God who yearns for justice and righteousness and to be upheld by his people, who yearns for people to live according to the covenant he has made with them. But hope in his people isn't all there is. Through the prophets, if we read them carefully, God promises hope for his people, hope that one day a saviour will be raised up who will break the cycle of sin and rebellion once and for all. Hope that someone will come and rebuild God's temple, who will establish God's kingdom on earth, who will complete God's purposes in creation and enable all people to be forgiven and to know God as Father. Prophecies of this Messiah or Saviour become more and more numerous as we get towards the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah tells us he's going to be born of a virgin. He'll be a wise and all-knowing ruling son of David. He'll be a fruitful branch who will produce redemption and restoration and blessings. He'll be a light to the Gentiles and a great comforting preacher of freedom, a healer, a bringer of joy. Micah tells us that the Messiah is going to shepherd his people. He's going to bring them security. Amos says that he's going to fulfill the covenant promises. Jeremiah says he'll be a king of righteousness. Ezekiel speaks of a mediator who will restore and shepherd his people. And after the exile, the prophets say that the Messiah will be royal and redeeming and restoring and will bring healing in his wings. We are blessed greatly because we know that Messiah as Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. As 21st century believers, we have the privilege of not only knowing that God will continue to hope in us and loving us faithfully, but also knowing this promised Messiah, ourselves, as our Lord and King. We can know the freedom that he brings as our sins are forgiven. We can know the healing that he brings as our hearts are made whole. We can know the joy that comes from having a restored relationship with God and knowing him as Father God forever. 
so we've come to the end of the Old Testament. And we've covered a massive amount this morning. I'm sure there's far too much for most of you to remember. And I'm very grateful that I'm sure it'll be up on the website before very long and you'll be able to listen again. As I finish, I want to offer you a moment of quiet to think about what I've been saying, to think about what has challenged you, to think about what might have inspired you and encouraged you. You know, we face tremendous challenges in putting God first in our lives. Every single one of us struggles to do that every day. We face a challenge in living a life that upholds justice and righteousness. But we also have the encouragement of knowing that God's love will never give up on us. And the encouragement of knowing that God's love is revealed perfectly in Jesus, our Messiah, the one we can turn to in faith and whose arms are always open wide. Let's hold a moment of quiet to think about what's been said and what we've heard from God this morning. And then I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for your love which goes on and on and will always hope in us. Thank you that you will never let us go or abandon us and that nothing can separate us from your love. Help us to live lives which uphold your laws and your covenant, which offer justice and righteousness to the world. And thank you, Father God, for Jesus, the Messiah, our Saviour and our friend, who enables our sins to be forgiven so that we can live every day in the light of your love. We pray that as we go from here this week, we would take with us that which you want us to learn and apply, and that you would give us open hearts and minds to be transformed by your Holy Spirit as your word works in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.